Hello, and welcome to Technology and Space, where we talk about the science, technology, history, and business of space exploration and commercialization. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. This is part one of two parts. I'm speaking with James Miller, who is a, an expert in spacecraft, in unmanned spacecraft navigation. Uh, you wrote a book on the topic, and I've done multiple interviews with you, which people can find on the channel. Um, and so we're just uh, talking again about the stuff you've been through and, and the work you've done. And thank you again for speaking with me. Thank you. So, I like talking about myself. <laughs> it's fun stuff. Um, so first, uh, actually, when we uh, finished off last time, you mentioned a few things you uh, wanted to talk about um, from your notes. And I think you mentioned some things from Mariner. The Purple Plague... Sc oh, yeah. Scan oh, yeah. platform unlatch and sun shutter problem. Yeah, yeah. I I thought that it was it was just this, I thought it would be an interest interesting. The further back I go, I think the more interesting it would be. To, yeah. to, to, and I go, you know, I go back to I I started uh, working in 1961, mm -hmm. but I I started working on the summers in 1958. Mm -hmm. So I was working at Westinghouse when the when the Navy took our, our submarine and, and 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 sent it to the North Pole mm. under the under the ice cap. Oh, okay. And, and, but it was uh, uh, the first couple of submarines that, that we made, Westinghouse made, were uh, had two screws on them mm -hmm. to propel them. Right. And the attack submarines, the, the, the ballistic. Missile submarines, you know, the, the Polaris missile submarines, they they uh, had one screw, so they didn't want to take any of those under the North Pole because if if they went too high and bumped the screw on the ice, they could they could lose lose propulsion. Hmm. This is this is very dangerous because they're flying they're flying under underneath uh, between the between the bottom of the ocean and the, and the bottom of the ice cap. It, 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 it's a few hundred feet. Mm -hmm. So they, they managed to get this thing all the way to the North Pole, and then you can find places where, where the ice is melted. You can punch up in surface. But yeah, that happened. That was a big deal. And I'm sitting at my desk, and and, the, and, the, and it was it was made a national news. You know, but anyhow, that was that's uh, uh, so, so I, I I sort of uh, without worrying about whether or not I'm really contributing anything really wonderful. I I've always been attracted to going to working for places where something is going on. Mm -hmm. And this is not a good idea if you want to if you want to make money or you want to have a be happy in your life because when things are going when th new things are being developed there's a lot of tension and people are fighting each other a lot and and so so I I kind of developed a thick skin so it didn't bother me but it, it really does bother you anyway yeah, yeah. Anyhow, anyhow I uh, I was I was saying I was telling earlier. I worked for five companies, and two of them were. One of them was Westinghouse Electric, which was a, a major. It was the one of the major, what you'd call high tech companies. Hmm. They they had what they did washing machines and and things like that. West and refrigerator, what they're famous for. They're Betty Furness and and their and their refrigerator, but but they also did some advanced work in, in on on military systems. Hmm. They, they they built the first jet engine in the United States. Oh wow! 
and they they also uh, built built the power plant for the first nuclear submarine, and also for the first commercial power plant, and that was all in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in where I was working. Hmm. And then I went to work for Lockheed Martin, and there, it was all it was it was Martin Marietta at the time. Lockheed was out in California, and they they did a Seamaster airplane, a big a gigantic seaplane hmm. jet. And, and, and they, they built bombers during World War II, and I worked in the, in the building where they, were, where they used to build bombers. And, 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 then, I, and then I got a job at Jet Propulsion Lab, and, and they're, they're, on, they were, they're on the news all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and I was out there. Uh, and, then I, and then I went to work for a small company, and then they, 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 they are out of the news altogether. <laughs> and I kind of decided I, I like working at JPO because things – when things are happening, you, there's always problems and they come up that need really fast answers. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to kind of uh, be prepared for, for, this, for this to some extent. So, so I always like being around because I, I, I like uh, doing that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sort of trying to give a little background because uh, as a result of working for all these different companies, uh, now that I'm retired for 10 years, I, I, I'm, I, I look back. And and uh, I I really don't have a have a, an outstanding favorite, and and on, on the other hand I don't dislike any of them. I don't one of the, you know, they're, they're all they're, they're all the same to me. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I'll say good things and bad things about the places that I worked because that's all it's all one thing to me. Mm-hmm. If I had only worked for one people who have only worked for one company all their life for like fifty years and never worked anywhere else. They have a very narrow view of the outside world. In fact, they don't have any view of it, and they don't understand that that a lot of what goes on is common. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I was telling you about punching a time clock, and I, I uh, when I went to work at Lockheed Martin, I said punching a time clock was something that I really hated because I like to come in when I went, felt like it and go home when I felt like it, and mm-hmm. and I do a lot of work at home. From you know, I make I give them forty hours a week. Mm-hmm. If I work more than forty, then that's mine. Whatever it is I did, that's mine. However, yeah. if, if there's some kind of an emergency, which does happen a lot, then I just, you just work until you until the problem is solved, and you don't you don't count that time. You're never going to get paid for it, and it, it, it just disrupts your whole schedule, your your life schedule, so to speak. So I could spend two or three days maybe working around the clock, and then when it's done, I just that, that, forget about it. One guy kept track of all his hours that he was putting in and and he he decided to take a month's vacation to make up for all of that all of the hours <laughs> i could have done that too but then they fired him because they, they managed higher management found out about it uh he, he took a vacation on his own time yeah, he just took a vacation without permission yeah they gave me the time and i'm going but uh I, I i knew all the tricks to avoid getting fired <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you some more some when when i started working you have to fill out a time card. It's a little card, you know, like a IBM card. At Lockheed or Martin? All the companies. Yeah. Like house too. And and what happens is is you get charge numbers. Well, this is more so at, 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 at JPL and also at Lockheed or at Martin. But anyhow, so you have four or five charge numbers that, that you're because you get different things you're working on. And so what you do is you fill it out in pencil 
And then your supervisor looks at it and he figures out where the money is. And, and he puts down how many hours you worked on the, on a different chart and, you know, and fixes it up so that it, total, so that it totals out all correctly. Mm-hmm. And, and, and every company's doing the same thing. Everybody, if you want your time card pencil. So I just, yeah, I don't pay much attention to it. I put some numbers down and hand it to them, you know, and I'd, oh, I'd make a guess as to how many hours I worked. You know. And uh, it usually wasn't. It, when I'm working for on one project, I'm usually thinking about another one. So anyhow, the lawyers got involved in, about 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and they, they said, okay, no more pencil time cards. or you, you have to actually account for every hour you work, just like a lawyer. Hmm. Yeah. But you fill out your time card. Well, I, I couldn't take this seriously, so I, I, I came up with a strategy. I said, okay, here's the deal. I'm only going to work on one project. But I'll, but I'll spend some time doing whatever you want. But I'm only going to put one, one one number on the time card. I see. And it'll be 40. That number down and put 40 beside it. And, and, and so I worked on big projects like Viking and Galileo. And that, so there wasn't, usually, it wasn't any problem. Well, after, when I, in between, I started working on smaller projects. But I still kept the one, uh, uh, the strategy of, uh, you only have one one number, and the reason for that was that I would make sure that the one number, the guy who was responsible for that one number, was satisfied with what I was doing, and I also I was satisfied that he he wasn't keeping track of how much time I was spending on anything, only what I was doing. Okay. So then I could do whatever I want essentially. The problem with having two. I knew a guy who was a very highly thought of person at, uh, at JPL, and I went with I went to school with him. Actually, he's one of the few people actually I, I remember from from when I went to, went to college. Mm-hmm. He designed the first uh, uh, Star Tracker. It was a electronic Star Tracker on Mariner Six. He put it on there. And he designed it. He was like twenty five or twenty six years old. He's designing this thing. It's a photomultiplier tube. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, and, and a lot of guys are doing this. I, I can't. He said he told me one time. He said, I can't believe I'm only 25 years old. I just got here and, and, and I'm designing. I'm, I'm responsible for the Star Tracker. Well, nowadays, you know, you'd have to be 100 years old to be responsible for anything. But, but uh, so, so anyhow, he he, uh, uh, he got in trouble late in his career, and I heard they fired him. But I, but what he did was he was taking money from one contract but working on another for the guy hmm. and he was charged putting charges down uh and and not and not putting the correct hours down hmm. he thought that the one job was was kind of stupid so i've charged them half time but then i'll do all my work on the other thing well the two guys that he's working for they got together and they figured this out and, and he got in trouble really got in trouble hmm. i get in trouble because i only had one Right. You don't, don't never allow a witness in the room if you're going to do anything that's a little shady. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. I'm speaking with James Miller, author of Planetary Spacecraft Navigation. You can find more information about the book on the Springer website. If you like this podcast, Technology and Space, so far, please subscribe. 
If you want daily book suggestions for new science, technology, and space, please check out my YouTube channel, Spacewalks Money Talks, and my website, Technology and Space. If you're looking for new military and general history information and books, check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you're looking for new fiction and nonfiction books on sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, and more, check out chrisalvarez.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. Now back to the podcast. Okay, well, I, well I, that kind of, that kind of, I thought a little bit of, that brings up another point. I'm trying to make a point here. Sure. And uh, when I worked for Westinghouse, we were responsible for the safety of the nuclear reactor. And at that time, they, they were regarded as 100% safe. There's no, you just nobody could conceive of anything bad that could happen in terms of that reactor blowing up or melting down or anything like that mm-hmm. because we had we had our safety systems really well designed so they didn't take the work too seriously but the people that I work with took it very seriously and I always get mad when I hear the media you know criticizing the companies and the people in the companies like at Westinghouse never get to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. I know from working with these guys that they, they, since human life was involved, there's, there's absolutely no question, but that they would stand up to, to any, any, any uh, company president or anybody and, and, and not do something if it was dangerous in any way, shape or form. In other words, the, the safety was, was part was paramount. Mm-hmm. And, and so I never questioned that. I just that was the, you know take, well now like you go to you go to another company like like JPL, and there's no human life on any oh there's human life on a submarine. And and there's 125 guys on there. Mm-hmm. I, I remember going into work one morning when the thresher had gone down to the bottom of the ocean and killed all all 125 crew members. And and this was you know this is a Everybody, you could hear a pin drop. There wasn't any noise at all in there. It was, it was the strangest thing. It, 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 was, it really affected people to lose that many people. Mm-hmm. JPL, you only lose money. <laughs> Spacecraft cost money. You know, if you lose one, okay, let's go spend money for another one. Mm-hmm. JPL had had. In order to have ethics, you have to have something to be ethical about. At Westinghouse, we just threw the money at the problem. We don't care about money. It was we 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 had to you know make sure everything was done right. Well, if you don't have human life on there, then it's it's how much does it cost? And and so I always took it very seriously because 100 million dollars is a lot of money. That's that's like 100 people. That's their life earnings. I can't, I could blow that in one with one with one bad mistake. Mm-hmm. I, I I regarded the 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 money aspect is as, as like human life. Well, I just made that transfer. You know, it's it's, it's money. It's it's it's, it's big people. It's the same to me. But the but the the uh, the culture is more inclined to be a little less concerned about losing making mistakes if you know that it's just going to cost a, a, a billion dollars. But it's or a hundred million. Hundred million is kind of my the threshold. But, uh, it's my attention. Any listen to that, I don't care. And, and so you, you, you tend to be a little more careful, careless about being careful. 
we have these two opposite cultures. One is human life related, and one is money related. And 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 uh, uh, so the 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 ethic. Yeah, I was always re- regarded as a big spender at J- at JPL. <laughs> I'm used to spending money. <laughs> Those guys. Okay, you got the point. Yeah, it's uh... <laughs> the, the overall conflict that went through my entire life. Was, was how much do you how much do you have to be careful about wasting money? Yeah, I, I I'm responsible for many forest trees being chopped down. I mean, <laughs> making making computer runs. I, I could go in there and change the computer program so that it doesn't print out so much. See? But then if I change it, I could make a mistake changing it. Hmm. I, I I had to find something that was buried deep in the code. So if the program ran for an hour, if I printed out everything it did, it would it would generate a, you know, a million pages. I mean, I don't know. I never tried it, but it would fill a room with paper. Mm-hmm. So to see what was going on, I would put little prints. I, I, I would isolate where I thought the problem was. I turn on the printer, turn on a printer, and have it print for a second, and then turn off, and then finish, you know, and then it runs run to the end. But during that second, I'd, I'd get you know a couple inches of paper. Yeah. So if I kept changing that print statement, or when I isolated to the section of the uh, where the problem was, I and I couldn't figure out what was going on. I would keep making different kinds of runs to try to highlight it or something, but I didn't want to change that print statement and move it around because I'm afraid I'd make some other error. <laughs> I remember one Sunday I was working on Viking. And I and I and I had an error like that. And there's a dumpster dumpster that was empty. I filled it up with paper. <laughs> about four hours. <laughs> and the people who were running the computers, they were getting mad at me. Because they see what I'm doing. I'd I'd pick up like a, a couple inch of papers, I'd I'd thumb through it and look at it for for about a second or two and I said, Oh, that's not right. Let me try this. And I'd, I'd throw it in the dressing the dumpster. <laughs> but other people would when they had memos, you know, have a memo, you know, that uh, um, you could write on the back, you know, if they save all their paper, you know, and, and, and make sure that they didn't waste it, waste it, you know. Uh, and I kept telling the guy, I said, I said, do you know how much that much paper costs? Do you know how much it costs to have you sit here and move that paper around? <laughs> it costs 10 times but what you saved by, by doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's funny. Um, let's talk about Mariner then. Those th- those points you brought up, I- I'm anxious to hear. You said the Purple Plague. That was the first thing. Well, okay. There's another one. Another thing I, I mentioned about uh, Bill Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Do you mind if I you talk about that first, just for sure? Okay, and then we'll go to that because that, that's that's that, I'm sort of prepared for this. Okay. 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 Bill Melbourne was the a section manager at JPL. I didn't work for him. I hardly knew him. However, when I went to this luncheon, I would see him there a lot, and I talked to him, and I got and I got to know him a little bit. Mm-hmm. He had about he had about a hundred engineers working for him, but he's probably the most. I think he's the most highly respected engineer at JPL. And it, it, he. Uh, was responsible for the or, orbit determination in the early days when they were first doing it. Mm-hmm. 
and he was a student of, of, of Feynman, Richard Feynman. I didn't even I, I asked him. Oh yeah, okay. But but he uh, he he passed away recently, and so at, at this luncheon that I just went to, we were talking about some of the papers he had written. And there's one. This is an article from Scientific American that he did in 1976, and I had there was another paper he had done for science for Scientific American, and and these papers were were uh, really good. You, you read them, and, and I mean he. What he did is explained all of the aspects of navigation. Hmm. And it's where you find anybody that you can give, you, you can see things that you work with and you become aware of. This is true at Westinghouse, it's true at, at, at JPL, and it's also true at Martin. You, you become aware of how things are done, but you always wonder who was the first guy that did this? Who was, whose idea was this originally? You can never come. I can never figure out who it was. And when I'm writing the paper, I want to reference. I want to reference people. You know, I don't know who to reference because because nobody really. You, they, the guy who did the original work immediately gets forgotten. That's kind of the way it works. Uh -huh. Well, Bill Melbourne, it, it, or the, if they go into management, they've never done anything. That's it's for the first time. <laughs> but Bill Melbourne was an exception. He had done some things that were really first that he understood. And and he was a, rose up pretty high in the management, and he never lost this this desire, I guess, to to. to okay, so anyhow, he wrote this uh, paper on the Viking mission, and 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 I had been on the Viking navigation team for five years, and we had a we had a, a meeting once a month where we got together with the Langley Research Center and, and Lockheed Martin, and JPL. Mm -hmm. I knew I knew the guys at Lockheed Martin because I worked with some of them when I was there. And, and we would argue and fight and, and go on and on on how we're going to navigate the Viking mission. And so, so uh, in June of 1976, we, you know, we land the thing on Mars. And I didn't know it, but he built Melbourne wrote a paper on navigation of Viking. He had never been to a navigation meeting that I ever was aware of. Yeah. So I kind of thought, when I first saw this paper, I thought, what? <laughs> I said, I should have written that. <laughs> it's scientific. But then when I read it, I realized what he had done. He had summarized all of the aspect of uh, interplanetary orbit determination, which was the big deal when I first went to work there. How do you determine where the spacecraft is out there? And and he came up with, uh, you know, when you, when, you, when you track with an antenna, you know, you see the spacecraft rise, and then it, and then it sets. And he came up with, well, when, 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 when you determine the orbit, we get very very accurate orbit determination, and it was kind of hard to figure out how could this be so accurate now. And, and, and what he came up with is, is what we call the Hamilton-Melbourne equation. So he did it with, with Hamilton, who was another guy, that he, the, the two of them. You know, we, so we all, when I first, for years, you know, uh, if, if, if I was asked, uh, well, what's the orbit determination accuracy if we send the spacecraft to this uh, asteroid out there? And I'd say, how far away is it? And and, and it's uh, like uh, three, A, 3 AU, that's three times the distance to the sun. That's 100, 500 million kilometers. So I'd say, okay, our orbit determination, I multiply that times, times 0.5 micro radians, 0.5 times 10 to the minus 6 
five, you know, that's the angular measurement accuracy, and, I, and that's the that's how accurate we could determine the orbit. Mm-hmm. So about, with the Helmut-Melbourne equation, we can just about solve all the navigation problems that have to do with interplanetary. And, and, and what he discovered was, and he wrote this paper on it, which is a very interesting paper. I read it. Rarer that I actually read a paper all the way through, get anything out of it. He, he determined that people, when you think of determining, um, uh, you take the range, you know the range to the spacecraft. So people think that you can, you can uh, put an antenna in, in, in Australia and an antenna in California. And, and put the baseline between them. You, if you know the, if you measure the uh, angles, you can, you can, you can, get, like a surveyor would do, you can determine how far away you are. Mm-hmm. You can't do that because the, the lines coming in, is so far away that the lines are parallel to each other. So you cannot determine the orbit by by uh, the typical surveying surveyor uh, uh, technique. It's the angle you want to get. Because you know how far it is. It's just in the light there. It goes there and it comes back. And you know how far it is because of the light run through light time. Mm-hmm. It could be 40 minutes or it could be a long time. The moon, it's a tenth of a second. We're, we're going quite a bit further away than the moon. Yeah. We're talking about hours, an hour of the light time. But what he determined was that the Earth is rotating. And the wave, the plate wave is, the, 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 the signal wave is coming in. And 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 you can by 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 knowing when zenith occurs or by watching the rotation of the Earth, you you can make a, a velocity parallax measurement, not a position parallax, which is what people always think of, which doesn't do you any good. Velocity parallax, and this is very accurate because the time is so accurate. We can measure to a billionth of a second, but you can measure this time so accurately. That you can, and also you know where the station locations are to a few meters. Now that, when I first station location is always a big problem. Two or three meters of station locations is a big error. And, and, and so, so, uh, so anyhow, that's what he did, and, and he wrote this paper. And and, and I, uh, I was so 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 so. Oh, another thing is he, he went into uh, describing navigation historically. I think he, he, you know, he, he just, he could do it really well because he did it so many times, I think. His paper had very little to do with biking. <laughs> it had to do with this problem, <laughs> you know. Like, for example, how do you, measure, measuring time with clocks, which is, the, which is what make, makes this work, is, is, a, is a similar, that's been a problem with Ron, during, during the Middle Ages, or, or when the first sailors first started going out in the ocean. Longitude is the problem. You have to, when you, when you sail, let's say you're in England and you sail uh, west, and you quickly lose, you don't, you don't know what the longitude is. Mm-hmm. So the only way to determine longitude is if you have a clock, and you can set it for, let's say, noon in London. The sun is up at noon. And then you sail west, and you, and you uh, wait until it's exactly noon, the sun is right overhead. And, and, you, and, if, you're, and if your clock is one hour different in time, it's, if, it's, if the time is off by an hour, and you're 700 miles from, from London, that's how you determine longitude. And he's got this in the paper, you know, and he got other arguments like that. Well, once, when, he did, when he came up with this, 
before, this is what, why it's important from a scientific standpoint. This is very rare that anybody at JPL ever does anything that's important scientifically. <laughs> he, he uh, when they, when they were ter- determine where the stars are in the sky, you know, they would do, they would in the planets where how the planets are going. They 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 had these photographic plates, big telescopes, you know, optical telescopes, and they make a take a picture of the stars, and then they get in with a microscope and, and measure or a, or a yeah, microscope or something mm-hmm. and measure very accurately where the stars are over there, mm-hmm. and they could they could determine the angles to to um, about ten milliradians, ten a ten ten or ten or twenty microradians. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and um, so that enabled them to, to determine all the pla- where all the planets are. Okay, the camera signal. Well, with the radio telescope, by doing this velocity parallax, you can measure it a hundred times, at least ten to a hundred times more accurately. Microradians, point two five. We can measure all of everything out there. To and we can get a radio signal it, it was very high precision so it you know, we, we, we at the stroke of the pen basically JPL took over for the whole world of determining where the planets were hmm. it, just by virtue of the fact that we had this radio antennas and a spacecraft the crack we had the spacecraft in the antenna <laughs> So, so that was, you know, that was very. The scientists didn't believe we could do this accuracy. It took a couple of years for them to catch on that we could do it mm-hmm. because we're going to having spacecraft over there and are not crashing. <laughs> that's, the, that's the only way you can get there. That's the only way you can prove anything. It has to be very dramatic because the scientists have closed minds because because they're. I'm speaking with. James Miller, author of Planetary Spacecraft Navigation. You can find more information about the book on the Springer website. If you like this podcast, Technology and Space, so far, please subscribe. If you want daily book suggestions for new science, technology, and space, please check out my YouTube channel, Spacewalks Money Talks, and my website, Technology and Space. If you're looking for new military and general history information and books, Check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you're looking for new fiction and nonfiction books on sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, and more, check out chrisalvarez.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. Now back to the podcast. Anyhow, I had had done some work on on molecules in a container. I wrote about three or four papers on this. Mm -hmm. And, and, I, and what I was trying to do is model a, a comet. And, and when the sun shines on the comet, it starts outgassing and gets the tail going, you know. Well, the molecules are flying off there, and they and they push with they, they they hit they affect the spacecraft. They push on the spacecraft like it's like a wind. Mm-hmm. So I, I I decided that the you know, that the way to do this is figure out how many molecules are coming off. It's the molecular weight, and so it's a kinetic theory of gas. So I was able to. Use that to figure out how much pressure is pushing on a spacecraft and how much the trajectory is going to be perturbed. I did that on Viking. Okay. And so one day I decided, I wonder if I could put a bunch of molecules in a computer program in a box 
hundred or so, and let them bounce around in there, getting where they are, and if, and see if I can duplicate uh, Maxwell's Maxwell Boltzmann. This is they did this in the they came up with the kinetic theory of gases, and that was Maxwell and Boltzmann. And distribution is uh, a curve that goes up and then goes down like that, and and that curve is well known in, in physics. Hmm. I was seeing if I could generate it. Well, I, I I didn't realize how fast computer was. When I started working, I noticed that I could do a million molecules. And I stick it in a little box, you know, and, and, and I was able to duplicate the Maxwell distribution, Maxwell distribution very high precision by doing a million molecules. Well, it turns out that it's unbelievable how fast the computer is, but I never imagined for each each collision that a molecule makes, uh, you have to search through all the other 999,999 molecules to find out which one you're going to hit next. Uh, yeah. And then you and then you have to do the, repeat this. Well, I came up with some efficient ways of, of doing that, and 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 I could I could. Uh, Simulate uh, uh, a million molecules for many, many collisions, and I could I could put all the molecules in there and just and have have them all at rest and just have put one molecule in there and going at the speed of light. Basically, mm-hmm. mathematics doesn't care about whether whether it's real or not. And then eventually, within a few collisions, it it's, it's, it it goes to the Maxwell distribution. Hmm. So I, I I thought that was neat. That 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 kind of verified that I knew what I was doing with, with uh, work on biking and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was a, a time when I, I I sort of had didn't have anything to do, so I was just playing around. <laughs> and I, and I, I, I discovered that my distribution did, did not match the maxwell boltzmann But I, I knew how to make it match. And if I did it right, it would be off by about 5%. So I was able to show on a computer that the Maxwell distribution is not the correct distribution. Hmm. And this is like saying that Einstein Maxwell Maxwell's famous. These guys are and I, I, I knew that I, I was going to have a hard time convincing the world that I actually had that that, that, that distribution was incorrect. I did find a couple of papers where people had actually tried to experimentally do this by putting gas in it and shooting it out and ionizing it, shooting it out in, into it and measuring the velocity and, and counting the counting the individual molecules. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and in 1957, these two guys did this. And they come up with a curve, and the curve was a little bit off and that was the amount that, that, that when I simulated it, I got that same thing. So it was off by the same amount. Oh. So I thought, oh, these guys are really going to be excited. I'm going I'm I'm to let them know that their experiment was correct. They were just using the wrong theory to verify. They thought that their experiment was wrong or awful. And they made a point about it. They were, they were very honest. They were, these guys were very honest. It was, this guy, one of, the, oh, one of the guys that wrote the paper, Got a Nobel Prize, and the other one was was, was a graduate student mm-hmm. of his. So I, I I called up the physics uh, department and, and uh, 
think it was uh, one of those Ivy League schools. I forget which one. And see if these guys you know, are still around. They're both dead. Oh. So I thought, okay, now I'm really – those guys would have known what I was talking about right away. And that I would have been – that would have been it. Mm-hmm. Of course, they'd take, they'd take my work and, and never mention that I ever – that's all right. I don't care. Now I realize I'm going to have a hard time selling this because I'm not going to. So I wrote a paper on it and I submitted it to the, the Journal of the Letters, you know, the, the big, the big prestigious journal for the for the uh, physics physics uh, And they they wrote back and pointed out that I didn't do this and I didn't do that and therefore my results are not right. I looked at it and I said. Um, these guys obviously don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't. They didn't understand the concept like you did. I said, find somebody that really that has done simulations on a computer, and, and have them read it, and, and let me talk to them. I'm not interested in somebody that doesn't know how to run a computer. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you can do this with a computer. But, so I, I, I just, I decided. Um, just talking to Bill Melbourne at lunch. I, I do have some, I, in my story, I do have a, a little bit of a relationship with him. First of all, Hamilton Melbourne, I said, okay, look, I was more diplomatic in wording this because I didn't want to you know, say something. I said, you, you, Hamilton Melbourne, you did these famous equations. I said, I don't believe that two people could do that. I think it had to be either you or Hamilton. Because two people, things never do anything creative or original. Everything that's creative and original comes from one person. Mm. But management doesn't like that. So what they'll do is they might manage to get this one person on a team, and then they credit the team, and then, every, then everybody's happy. You know. But, so I, I've been playing that game for, for 35 years, so I knew what they were up to. So I, so I asked him. I said, he said, oh, he says, uh, I did it. It was all mine. And he managed to convince me that he did do it. Yeah, he, Hamilton. Uh, I think Hamilton may have been his boss at the time. I didn't realize that because because he rose up higher than Hamilton. But but they're both they, they were both very obviously very friendly people to each other, and 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 so they didn't care one way or the other. It's very friendly. JPL people are, are, can be very modest. The ones that really do something original are very usually very modest. You know. They, if you can talk to a really top scientist, you, you can you can, they're very nice people. You can really get make, make some headway with them mm-hmm. if you can actually get them to listen to you. <laughs> Anyhow, the uh, so I gave him I, I explained my theory of molecule collisions. You know, I said I said I'm having trouble. He says well I said I said what I find out is the only papers that scientists are interested in publishing are settled science. In other words. Real science, by my definition, is you have a you come up with a theory and then you test it with experiment. And if you're a good scientist, half the time you're going to be wrong. If you're a bad scientist, you're just not challenging yourself very much. Right. If you're a, if you're a student, you're not allowed to do anything. You're not allowed to question anything. You. Your science is geared, geared toward confirming what we already know by doing an experiment to show here, here's, here are the numbers for this situation. Here are the numbers, but they never challenge the theory. That 
because the theory is settled science. Well, I was challenging settled science. Well, they have a name for people that do this. They call them Einsteins. There's a lot of people who do general relativity, and they think that they know something better than Einstein, and they probably do. And they try to get a paper written on it, and 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 the, the journals don't just don't want to talk to them because of, you know because it's settled. That's all settled science. We don't want to have anything to do with it. It's very hard to get new ideas, and, and uh, unless you have unless you have an experiment that's, that that is very convincing. Hmm. That's what I like about working at JPL because it's very convincing when you send a spacecraft out there and it doesn't crash into something. Yeah. <laughs> so, so 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 anyhow, I. I'm, t- I'm t- telling this. He says, oh, he says, guess what? He says, I, on the 100th anniversary of the Maxwell Boltzmann discovery, you know, the, the, the distribution, which I'm saying is wrong, he says, I, I did a, 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 a study when I was at Caltech. And I read their papers to verify or, or to see what they had done. And Feynman was his, Richard Feynman, I don't know if you know who he is. Sounds familiar. Richard Feynman is the famous. Uh, he's, he's on. He was on TV a lot. He was regarded as the smartest man in the whole world. He got a Nobel Prize for doing some electro- quantum electrodynamics or something like that. But, but he was Feynman's student. Feynman is probably the, one of the best known professors at Caltech. And he said, "Yeah, I read the paper, and I, and I gave him my paper. I read your paper, and I think that Maxwell and Boltzmann are right." I said, uh, okay, I said, I'm not going to hold that against you because you're challenging thinking that I'm wrong and you're right uh, because you're wrong. I know that. And, and, but I'm not going to hold it against you because, because you know, obviously I, uh, I, have, I have respect for all the work you did. <laughs> I don't want to get you in any trouble. I sort of said something like that. <laughs> but he, but uh, that, he helped me because he convinced me that I'll never get anybody to ever the only way I could get anybody to verify that what I had done is correct is by having them write the, the, essentially the same computer program that I wrote. Mm-hmm. And this would take them a month, maybe, a couple of weeks, not fast, because I've done a lot of this. It, just to get them wound up on it, and, and, and it would take a long time. And so until somebody does that, my, my theory will never be accepted because you can't. I can't prove it other than by making computer runs. And and scientists generally don't accept computer results as being having any any validity at all. I, I point out to them that mm-hmm. all the work that I that I do on navigation is done with a computer. Mm-hmm. The equations. I don't care about much about the equations. The only thing I care about is this, my computer program. Right? And you've had success. <laughs> I I was doing some work. For, uh, but when I was on the near mission, one of the things that really concerned me, we, 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 we could determine where the orbit was, and then when we lowered it, we had to redetermine it every time we lowered it. And the closer you got to the to the asteroid, the harder it was to determine the orbit. It got really difficult. Mm-hmm. Landmarks, instead of looking at big landmarks, every time you went down, you had to pick a bunch of little craters inside of the craters. And every time you look at the Crater is like this, you know, and then and then you go down closer, and then you're looking for craters inside the craters to, to use as landmarks. Because the smaller the crater is, the more accurately you can locate it. It's big; you can't find the center that accurately. So, 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 uh, I, I 
done all the studies to show that, that, that we can navigate and get into 25-kilometer orbit and all that. But I was never really sure. And, and, and the problem I, it was that in order to make a prediction 10 days in the future, which is what we needed to have the time to get the data and, and do the, get the maneuvers to put it back on track. And we, we needed a 10-day period of time to do that. It took about five days just to get the data and wait for the data to come up. Mm -hmm. And so the, I had to be able to make predictions that were good to 100 meters 10 days in the future. And, and, and in order to do that, I had to know where I was at the present time to one meter. And I and I always I'm sitting there thinking for years, you know, and we do one meter orbit interpretation. Is, 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 are these results that I'm generating right or not? And, and I I couldn't tell the management my concern because I know that they they would just either ignore it or they would uh, if I if I was really convincing, then they'd get somebody else to, to come in and help me or something. It would become a and we we didn't have time for that. We're getting too close. And one of the smart guys that I was working, he's now a, a professor of, uh, head of the Department of uh, Aerospace Engineering at Boulder, Colorado. But he was a young guy helping me. And But he was very smart. And he, he comes to me one day and he said, you know what, Jim? He said, in order to get that prediction to 100 meters out there in 10 days, you have to know the orbit within one kilometer <laughs> or one meter. Mm. <laughs> I said, I thought to myself, oh, he figured it out. <laughs> and I said, uh, I, and I said, yeah, you're right. I said, I said are you sure you could do that? And I said, no, but I, I, we'll find out when we get there. If we if we can't, we're not going to go in a 25 kilometer orbit. That's going to be the that's going to be the problem right there. And, and there's going to be a lot of people that are going to really be mad about it. But I, I don't care because I'm going to retire anyway, and I'm, I'm not worried about it. And he makes it proof. He, he says, you have to prove it. You have to prove it. Math the mathematics are correct. Mm -hmm. I said, look, see, the only thing I have to do is three months from now is I have to have a computer program that's going to process the data, make the predictions, and enable us to do navigation. Whether the mathematics are correct or not, I could care less at this point. I did. I did. I am sure, sure the mathematics are right, but I, if they're not, there's no way in the world that we're going to be able to fix fix the mathematics up. We're going to find a mathematical error and fix it up in time to, to do the operations. Mm -hmm. I'm not thinking about whether 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 I whether, I'm not going to prove. I don't have to prove anything. Mm -hmm. But I'm wrong. Yeah. <laughs> The time for proof is five years before you propose the mission. That's when you prove it. After you prove it, then you just do it. The last thing in the world I want is to find an error in my program two days before we're, we're going to do a maneuver. I don't want to find it. I'd rather... <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, that was my experience with Bill Melton. Cool. Yeah. That's and interesting. I, I miss him because he's. I think he's the last of the really... Sharp guys, the really did original work. Mm. One of the the last of the really highly respected uh, engineers to came to Yeah. Well, it's sad he's gone, um, but at least he left a legacy, a, a pretty cool legacy. So 
his wife, uh, I, I had to be careful when I'm talking to him because his wife could hear everything I say. You know, I, I, I couldn't tell him how, you, you know that I don't like managers very much because his wife, she <laughs> still comes to the meetings, to the, to the luncheons. She comes by herself. Uh. And she hears all this about him, you know. Because this, this paper has all of a sudden become a hot topic because now that he's dead, we can talk about him. I always say, yes. Yeah, I said, if you want to say something uh, bad about somebody, wait until they die, then you can say it. So if they're alive, you have to say good things about them. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's. Uh, can we? T- do you want to talk about Mariner now? Those those issues you had brought up before. Yeah. All right. Uh, I, I was I was going to mention some. I was working hardware at this time, and and and, and the Mariner was a big redesign. It was the first. It was the first really big redesign. Of a spacecraft that brought it up to date. The, the the original design of interplanetary spacecraft was the Ranger mission, and there were six of them, or seven of them, and and and, and the Surveyor also was in the same time frame. But they only sent two or two or three um, spacecraft to to the planets. So 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 Mariner Six was like it was the sixth one, but a couple of them had failed. So there was really this is like the third time anybody had ever sent a spacecraft. In the United States now, to to uh, to another planet. So so so, uh, and now we have a spacecraft that's completely redesigned, and and it included uh, uh, high speed uh, te- telecommunications, one hundred thousand bits per second. Mm-hmm. Some of the data that we, were, we we would get back earlier was like eight bits a second. It would just turn you where something was turned on or off. You know, that's about all you could get. You get some data, some numbers done once in a while, but it, 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 the, the, the data rate was really slow. And this was high-speed block-coded data. Now, this is what you, the Internet is. The only difference between our communication with the spacecraft and the Internet was was the Internet takes the same in, in, the same uh, transmission and, 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 and does switching circuits, telephone switching circuits, so you can communicate with different people and switch data around. But... Uh, so, and we also had a, uh, a scan platform, a movable scan platform with, with all the instruments mounted on it, and we could, so we could point it. When it and, mm-hmm. and we had a computer, first computer on, on, a, on a spacecraft. And the, the, uh, I, I developed the uh, software for the ground to control that computer because I was the only one who knew how to program, program a computer because, because engineers didn't program computers because that's for programmers. Programmers are a lower form of life, or <laughs> a higher form of life than engineers. But that's but the trouble is, if you think you're really at the top and, and, and really smart, be careful because <laughs> there's always somebody down below you that's going to overtake you. Pretty, once you get that attitude, they're going to make it their life duty to, to show you that they know more than you do. Yeah. So engineers who didn't like the program, they 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 sort of got pushed aside. I, I, I knew that that was going to be the case because I when I first started working at Westinghouse, the, the, I worked in electrical, double, I had an electrical engineering degree, and that can actually on a on a nuclear submarines they have what's known as a magnetic amplifier, and and vacuum tubes, all amp radios and things like that were vacuum tubes, mm-hmm. and even a car radio had little vacuum tubes in it. I had a portable radio with, 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 with vacuum tubes. 
And the transistor had just been invented in 1948. And, and by 1955, that's when we started getting these uh, Sony transistor radios. That was the first big production where it actually used a transistor. Okay. And, and uh, the, the uh, so, so there was a, a lot of uh, uh, new technology in the spacecraft. And, and one of the things that they, that they uh, was new was integrated circuits. The guy who invented it, that's the chips, you know, what a chip, the chip that you have that runs all your computers. Mm -hmm. A printed circuit, we call them. And before, that was all done on circuit boards that had discrete components. And you could, now you could put a billion of these things on a little, yeah. <laughs> just print them. <laughs> You work out the circuit on a big thing like this, and then shrink it down and print it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, you know, that's what they do. And 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 this is new. So print, printed circuits uh, was it was a new thing on mirror or or, or, or the um, what did I just call it? Okay, anyhow, that kind of type of device. Mm -hmm. so we're about we're doing our testing, you know, getting ready for launch, and we're. You know, we're making up simulated data, and we're doing. We, this is going on and on. One of the things when you when you do something um, that's new for the first time, you have to practice it a, a hundred times. I mean, we just do things practicing over because management wanted to make sure that we're not going to make a mistake, especially on Viking. It's a billion dollars. That's a lot of money. I want. <laughs> For the price of that spacecraft, I could I could rebuild all the all the buildings in Los Angeles that I could see. Hmm. All the spacecraft. We if we crash it, it's like wiping out. It's like dropping a bomb on Los Angeles and destroying every building. That's a billion dollars. That's maybe like ten billion today. Hmm. Well, actually, it's a billion. So yeah. But anyhow, we we uh, we'd be sitting in in uh, operations and in and and, 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 and and one of the things that was happening is all of the systems, the, tele the telemetry, the, telecommun the telecommunications, the, the computers had were, had were failing because the integrated circuits were failing. Hmm. So, so uh, we're trying to figure out what to do because we're going to launch in a couple of weeks. <laughs> things, are, things are failing. So they, do a, they did a, a, a uh, they sent a team to Motorola, I think it was, in, in uh, Phoenix. Mm -hmm. I'm saying Motorola. A lot of my memory isn't as good as it used to be. I'm, I'm, I'm bringing out a lot of stuff that's really old, so I might not get the right players or the right time. But I'm doing the best I can. Okay. We sent this team to try, try to figure out what, what went wrong. Why are these failing? So, so they're 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 looking at the assembly line. And they had everybody do exactly what they did, you know, in order to try to figure it out. And this woman takes the takes a rag and dips it in some 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 solution and wipes off the integrated circuit. And they said, "What are you doing?" And they figure out that she put some acid of some kind on them, and and, and that, that that caused them to fail. And and so then they figured out. That they had watched, it's like watching the uh, COVID 19 uh, death rate. It was going up and then it was cur curving down and coming down. So they figured out that, that if this, this chemical reaction is probably, if it's going to kill the, uh, 
the integrated circuits, it'll do it within a, within a, within a few weeks. And then after that, if they survive that, they're probably all right. We don't have to worry about. It. Mm. So we can launch a spacecraft. Okay, that's, that's that's one. So they just decided to launch it. Okay, now I'm sitting there uh, about three or four days before launch, and 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 uh, the guy says uh, uh, the spacecraft. Uh, they lost pressure on on the Atlas. See, the Atlas missile is just a balloon filled with fuel. Mm -hmm. And if you take the fuel out, it's just going to, with all the weight on there, it's just going to (laughs) collapse. So they lost pressure on the the fuel tank, and the spacecraft went over and bounced off of the gantry. And then they restored pressure and it popped back up again. Uh-huh. So what are we going to do? Are we going to launch this thing? You know, and, and there's no time to take it apart and figure out what what to do. So another great management decision. Okay, the the, the project manager on Mar- on Mariner Six was was uh, his name was Harrison Shuma. Mm-hmm. He's the one that got after five straight failures of trying to send the spacecraft to the moon. You know, mm-hmm. going in, the Ranger Six was the first success. He was responsible for making Ranger Six a big success, so he, he could make decisions. Mm-hmm. And he had a guy, he had a guy that was working for him, who was mm-hmm. also a pretty pretty uh, tough guy. Let's say I, I won't mention his name. I didn't like him that much, but I like I like Bud Schumer. He was a really interesting guy. He just said, "Let's go ahead and launch it." You know, forget about that. And 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 so about so now. Uh, the, when you get down to the very end, you know, there's all of a sudden the, the geniuses start to click, click into uh, in, 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 in the action, you know. So they come to me and they said, we're concerned about a proton storm. What if a proton storm comes from the sun? What's it going to do to the spacecraft? I never, I, I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> so, so I go... So they say, okay, you got an action item to find out what the problem, what, what the solution to this problem is. So, so I go walking over and I walk in the halls, you know, with, my, with the division that I worked in, and I found the guys that, that uh, designed all this stuff, you know. And I said, uh, what, what about a, a proton storm? Oh yeah, proton storm. Don't worry about it. That's that's not going to cause anything. That's not a problem at all. So, so I, I talked to three or four of them, and they all said the same thing. And I thought back and said, okay, now i gotta, I got to write down a memo answering this question as to whether or not we have a concern here. Mm-hmm. So for the first time in my life, I decided I'm just going to lie. I'm not going to – I'm going to say that it's it, – I'm going to say it's my idea. And, or, or I'm going to have the answer. I'm not going to – I'm not going to say that I talked to anybody. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote down and I, I wrote a memo. The only time in my life I ever done this, I said, there's actually nothing to worry about. That's the guys that are selling me, you know. Of course, they're not, no, nobody's going to, they don't have to write it down. I said, proton storm can't cause any problem. We don't have to worry about the proton storm. And that was the end of that. Mm-hmm. I had many, many problems like that in the future. Mm-hmm. I, I I always worked very hard to make sure that I could. I was prepared. Uh, if I couldn't answer a question, I never knew the answer to any of these questions. But I could quickly do something, my own analysis. 
determine whether or not there's a problem here. Mm-hmm. I never again had to, have, but managers do it all the time. Mm-hmm. That, that in order to be the head of the, the team, you know, that navigates the spacecraft, mm-hmm. you have you have to be very confident. You know, really, they're, they're as confident as Trump. He knows the answer to every problem. That's what you have to be when you're a manager. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so every time they're on all the projects that I worked on, decisions were made based on what I would regard as flimsy information. Mm-hmm. Give me a week or two to study it. Oh, you know, we got to do it. We got to know right now, you know. Oh, yes, we got to know right now. Okay, this, this is the best information we got. This, here's what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Go and do the studies. And then I come back. Problem really is, and what the solution really should be, mm-hmm. but change what they already decided. But then I then I analyze what the, what is the effect of doing what they decided to do. And nine times out of ten, it didn't make that much difference, or it didn't increase the risk of mission failure by that much. So I just uh, let, just let it go. I decided that this is the price I have to pay to, to do the work I do. Otherwise, <laughs> if I could get in early, like I did on the near mission. I got in really early, and I I I buttonholed the key personnel. And I, when they said what they could do, mm-hmm. I told them, them, I said, this, "Are you sure you can do this?" I'm I'm going to design the the, the, the software to do it that way. I mean, you're right. Like, you're wrong. I know I'm never going to give them the right of memo saying that it's wrong. You know, me. I, I, I always uh, went after them and made a new year's trips to get my physics laboratory. Every time there's just one guy, he claimed that he could, when you, when you point, his, his attitude control system was so accurate, was unbelievably accurate. That's accurate for pointing. JPLs was 100 times, our spacecraft were 100 times worse than that. Hmm. They said, look, if you can point that accurately, I, I don't have to have a star in the image with, with the crater. I, my, my plan was to strip images off to the edge, and you have the asteroid, and here's a crater, and here's a star, and we have to know the distance between the crater and the star. Well, he, could, he could look at the stars, determine the attitude, and tell me what that word the star was, and then I, I didn't have to do that. So I could take, I could take get some good images by looking straight down with Looking off the period, like usually. Mm-hmm. It said uh, the, uh, the CCD, large couple device, that's, that's a video camera. They're all, all your cameras are. This camera here is a CCD. That's pixels. They're like a uh, thousand by a thousand. And they're on a little chip. Or maybe a chip. Ours was 512, something like that. He said, he said, look, I could take a star and I could run it down between the pixels so that you'll never see the star. It won't hit a pixel. Light up. So I could, I, I, could, I, could, I, I could point the spacecraft. I, I, I sort of, it sounded unbelievable to me, but the reason he told me he could do that was because they, he had done some Star Wars with 
point spacecrafted missiles are coming at them or something like that. Hmm. They developed a spacecraft that could really put the very high precision. That was you're making this mission. So the purple, the purple plague. I'm still interested in that. We I've mentioned it a couple times. The purple plague was was what was the stuff that they that they had on those on those uh, integrated circuits when she wiped it on. Oh, it was that purple. was the purple. And they they noticed that the things were purple. Mm-hmm. The one sailing had purple on it. So uh, they called it the purple plague. And how about you mentioned the scan platform unlatch? Maybe I misheard that. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, that that is, okay. That that involves uh, that. That's what got me uh, known enough that I could, that I when I quit JPL, I I came back. I quit for a year and a half and then came back. Hmm. The, the, the one thing that I did was, which was on Mariner Six, that, that made me known amongst the management over there. That when I called up and said, "Hey, I need a job," I just they just hired me right away because they knew I. Like I, like I said before in a previous one of these lectures, uh, management would, would rather have somebody that um, that they know can do the job rather than Einstein who they have to train. Hmm. Probably would probably have a hard time getting them to do because he would be bored. But if you find somebody that knows how to do something and are willing to do it, so I, 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 I yeah, sorry. So, but anyhow, the, the problem we had was that we, we launched the uh, Mariner Six. And we we're going to launch, launch Mariner Seven a couple of weeks later, but about about a week after launch, there's a the scan platform, which was a thing that were all the instruments on that they you know it could rotate up and down and point. You, know, you keep the spacecraft still, you point the scan scan platform. It had to be unlatched because during launch, there's a lot of vibration on a spacecraft during launch. That's what caused a lot of failures on the Ranger Six. The the, the big failure that they were concerned about was the uh, Viticon. Uh, short or not, because of the vibration, a, a relay, mm-hmm. click, shoot, click, shot, you know, mechanical relay, and, and shorted off the TV camera. So they were um, the, the the scan platform is latched down. So that, so they have to unlatch it so that they can move. Well, this is unbelievable. But the way they do it is they they had. I can't remember the exact mechanism, but essentially what it amounted to is there was a spring that that held the latch closed. Mm-hmm. And then they had a squib, which is a little explosive device that they use to 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 break to break the uh, thing so that the spring would then move and unlatch the scan platform. And somehow somehow uh, hydrogen gas got involved in this. There was a little container of hydrogen gas that was used to, to maybe uh, unlatch the scan platform. That's what it was. So what they would do is they'd fire the squib, and the hydrogen gas would then vent out and, uh, and, and take the pressure off. Hmm. And, 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 but they were concerned about the, the, the gas escaping from the spacecraft perturbing the trajectory. Mm-hmm. So they vented it to a T, a T like this, and so it would go like that, and we'd and, and, and so there would be no net force at the peak. But then they don't have to worry about, about the outgassing from, from the spacecraft because mm-hmm. it could cause the trajectory to get known. Well, they, un, they unlatch the scan platform, and the spacecraft starts to, starts to turn away, lost sunlock, lost the track, 
And then the the the, the orbiter mission guy said the spacecraft moved a thousand kilometers at at, at Mars. <laughs> so they said the, the, something went wrong with this gun. It actually moved, actually propelled the spacecraft. And I and, I, and I'm sitting there, I hear that story, and I said, and they told me, uh, you know, what happened, you know, about the tea and all that. And I said, I wondered, I wondered uh, if I if I could see it, you know, I, 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 nobody knew what was going on. So I went down to the, what the the Von Karman Auditorium, where all the news the, the news people come to to cover the press, you know, it's a big auditorium, and they have spacecrafts on display there. Well, they had what we called our proof test, test model spacecraft, and it was it was down there. It was the actual spacecraft. It could have been sent to Mars. Mm. It was an extra. See, we had built two, and then we had an extra. Money, money was a lot freer than it is now. Let me put it that way, because they don't do it anymore because of the money. The guys are stupid when it comes to money. If you don't know how to spend money by the bushel baskets full, you, you're not of any use in the space program. Let me put it that way. But anyhow, I went down there. I found the tea. I looked at it. And I said, I said, oh, look at that. I know what happened. What happened was the tea was in a was in a big uh, cavity that acted like a rocket engine. So when the gas came out of the tea, the fact that it canceled out at the tea that didn't do anything. It expanded into this vacuum and and moved out in, in a certain direction, uh. like like just like a rocket engine. Well, I from my from my kinetic theory of gases, I knew how much. How many grams of hydrogen was in that was in the little the container that did this? But I had one advantage: the the, the um, trajectory people could see the trajectory move, but they had no idea about the attitude of the spacecraft. The attitude people could see the, the, the lost the attitude, but they couldn't figure out anything about the trajectory. So they need somebody that knows everything. And that's always me. If, if if it's not me, I tell them that anyway. Because people who know everything know that they don't really know very much. <laughs> if you, people, people who think they really know a lot are people who know a little, a lot about a little of something. You know? Okay. Anyhow, anyhow uh, what I figured out was that, that there, you know, that there was a certain amount of force, and and I looked at the sun sensor, and there was a little parabolic. Uh, arc in the data because it only goes about a degree or two before maybe four three or four degrees before the sun sensor loses loses the uh, sun it's a knife edge that the sun shines on a little detector the night that's a jpl invention by the way a little knife edge and the sun shines on it and it it tells you where the sun is so i was able to determine for for a few minutes what what the attitude acceleration was and then i took the, the trajectory miss of a thousand kilometers and i worked it back and i figured out how much velocity it took to cause that much error and what the direction was so so i i figured it all out and and then i took that um, and, and applied it to mariner 7 which was on its way mm -hmm. what happened with mariner 7 because it's going to do the same thing uh, right it's going to be a different <laughs> and and I, I said well we're lucky on Mariner 7 it's because of the trajectory it, it, it isn't going to be much of a perturbation at all 
the director won't, won't provoke very much. And I was right. I got. I. I was able to. I was able to figure out what the problem was. Half the problem. Uh, convincing somebody that you figured out what the problem was is, is usually almost impossible. Mm. But if you can sh- if you can apply it to another spacecraft and then tell them what that's going to do, then they then they become believers. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> and they, and, they, and, and uh, I had a little bit of fame there among, amongst one person who understood what I did. And he hired me back later on. It's worth it. If he has the money, that's who you want to convince. Yeah, yeah, right. He's a he's a pretty high level guy now. I I I work with some people that are very important people. Like I like the guy that's the current director of JPL. I work for him, mm. and the guy that was my boss, the one the one that got me fired, basically, he became the deputy laboratory director. Mm-hmm. And when it, when I came back, you know, after. I quit because they tried to fire me, and then they decided not to. And I said, "Hell yeah, I'm getting out of here." And a year later, I came back, and then then I, every time I saw him in the hall, now he's a big manager. He's that up, up up on the ninth floor of Building 180. And, and every time he'd see me, we'd stop and talk. You know, I found out that the people that I fought with the most are Mariner Six, especially the programmers. We were lifelong friends after that because we we both realized. How dumb we were! <laughs> and how we arguing about things that we, we knew nothing about, but you had to do something, mm-hmm. and this, some decisions had to be made. And somebody's that some people's attitudes, solutions to the problem were a little better than others. But basically, we didn't really know what we were doing half the time, <laughs> and, and and so you make a lot of enemies that way. People can really get angry because they when, when you when you uh, when people have an idea that they think they know, they manage to convince themselves that they really know it. Mm-hmm. Try to tell them that, you know, you don't know it. This is what's really, then they get really angry. Anyhow, that was uh, one of the experiences that I regard as one of my best experiences in working with doing that scan platform. This ends part one of two parts. Thank you for listening to Technology and Space. If you want daily book suggestions for new science, technology, and space, Please check out my YouTube channel, Spacewalks Money Talks, and my website, Technology and Space. If you're looking for new military and general history information and books, check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you're looking for new fiction and nonfiction books on sci fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, and more, check out chrisalvarez.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. Thank you for listening.